0: Welcome to the latest episode of Spotlight, a PEI podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I am Adam Lay, Senior Editor based in London, and today we have Chris Field, a partner at law firm Deckett, who's here to talk to us all about Deckett's latest private equity industry report. Chris, welcome to Spotlight.
1: Thank you, Adam, and thank you for having me.
0: Chris, it's been a year since we had you here at PEI. Yes. It's yes. flown, time it, has flown. It really has <laughs> flown, yes. A lot has happened in 12 months, I feel.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, not to get ahead of the report, but I think actually, to me, last year was more of the inflection point. I think this year has been a year, in some ways, of, of a regular cadence, which reflects the continuation, and in some cases, acceleration of trends we talked about last year. Um, But interesting to see that some of the things we discussed last year have kind of been vindicated by experience this year.
0: Mm, You're talking about things like take privates and and specific deal types.
1: Correct, correct. And approaches to deal types and how you navigate an elevated interest rate world. Um, I think a lot of those themes.
0: Very good. Well, I have to say I was really, really intrigued reading your report because, I mean, it's clear to us as journalists that the industry is facing a lot of challenges right now on different fronts. And I kind of felt that your report kind of showed how industry participants, GPs are responding to that in very sort of, I guess, nuanced ways that people might not actually be be thinking about. Hurdle rates and fees and all that kind of thing. So
1: yeah, absolutely. And can I take the opportunity to plug our report quickly? Of course, course you've teed me up for that, so thank <laughs> you. Um, so just for the benefit of listeners, a little bit about the report: it is our 2024 Global Private Equity Outlook Report. This is actually the sixth annual report that we've done. So we've got some nice trend data over the years that we've accumulated. A little bit about the methodology of the report: uh, we survey a hundred senior level executives within the private equity industry. And that's globally. We split it out 45% across North America, 35% across EMEA, and the remaining 20% across Asia Pacific. So we like to think that it's a true global analysis of where the market is at and where we think it's likely to go.
0: Mm, very interesting. Well, really excited to delve right into your report. Um, sure. And and I was curious. One of the biggest sort of takeaways that I got, which I'm curious to, to kind of get your take on, is the fact that you know one year on uh, issues like inflation and uh, higher interest rates remain the kind of you know top of mind for GPs globally.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. One of the questions we posed to respondents was, what is the single biggest impact that you think will be on the deal environment generally over the next 12 months. And the biggest response, which was 26% of respondents was um, elevated interest rates. And I think that really is the key theme for this coming year. you know the, the question is, will rates stay elevated and there's a corollary to that, which is if they do start coming down, how quickly do they come down and by what amount do they come down? And that's going to drive so much behavior through the industry.
0: Mm, mm, very interesting. I mean, is that something that you really saw play out in your own practice, I guess, over the last 12 months?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when rates first started climbing, you saw the emergence of the valuation gap. And, and although the valuation gap has shrunk a little bit over the course of this year, you've seen responses, on particularly on the sell side, to try and bridge that valuation gap. And so what we've seen a lot of and are continuing to see is use of forms of deferred consideration. Just checking the data here, I believe it was 92%, I believe it was, of our respondents said that they will be making use of earnouts. So that's a huge percentage response, Um, but it's not just earnouts, it's uh, vendor loan notes, it's deferred payments, you know, all sorts of different forms of deferred consideration, all of which allow the sell side to maintain their headline price but at the same time ensure that they're pricing it at least up front at a level which works for the buyer. Mm, If I'm not
0: mistaken, earnouts is something that you predicted that we would see more of this year when we spoke at this time a a year ago. I'll take that. Yes. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) Okay. So we're talking about sellers trying to kind of bridge that gap via different creative ways, I guess, uh, in order to to get Mm -hmm. deals done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: And I think you're also seeing it if we keep talking about the impact on the buy side as well. You you know, the single biggest, and and this has been, you've talked about it a lot in other contexts, this has been the biggest theme on the buy side, has been the use of add-ons rather than platform acquisitions in the face of constrained financing. Specifically, 20% of our respondents said add-ons are the most important strategy that they're using to navigate the current market. And you can see why it helps to boost your overall EBITDA multiple, while still using less leverage, which is important in the current elevated rates environment, but also operationally, it gives you a clearer path to realizing synergies, given you can see those synergies with the platform that that you already own, and that makes it more likely that you'll be comfortable to put in more equity. So self-fulfilling in that sense.
0: Very interesting. Thinking about kind of how this then translates down into, I guess, models and kind of uh, returns and fees within the private equity firms themselves or within their funds, I was interested to see there were a couple of different data points within your report that kind of suggested that there, there were new things that we hadn't maybe seen in the past that were starting to pop up in the last 12 months. And I guess I'm specifically referring to questions around um, hurdle rates, fees, and the use of carry. I think you had one particular data point that showed that a sizable proportion of GPs were foregoing carry to actually incentivize and retain staff. I, I found that quite,
1: quite yes. interesting. Yes, yes. You know, one, one of the issues is... Will carry be earned, and how do you reset the hurdle in a situation where carry won't be earned, and and ways of achieving that, and and we might talk about this a little bit later when you look at the exit or dearth of exits, and the use of alternative liquidity solutions, as the phraseology has now emerged, you know ways of returning liquidity to investors, you know a variety of those, particularly using GP led secondaries or forms of continuation fund, allow you in addition to holding the asset for longer to also reset the carry, which is helpful and reset fee allocations as well. So absolutely.
0: Mm. What what do you mean by reset fee allocations specifically? Resetting carry makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, also, you you know, if there's downward pressure on fees, that's an opportunity for those to be renegotiated as well.
0: I see, I see, I see. Okay, so those can be renegotiated into the continuation vehicle, I guess. Okay, Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay, interesting. And then in terms of hurdle rates, it was roughly 60% of respondents said that they felt that the current environment would pose a risk to their fund performance in terms of the fund falling below, I guess, the hurdle rate of 8%. Um, yes. That's
1: quite a high percentage that of is people a high percentage. worried about that. It is you know? um And again, I think it's all a function, to come back to our original discussion point, it's all a function of the elevated rates environment. I've seen some uninformed commentary out there talking about the private equity industry generally, and the sort of perception that there might be some sudden explosion and destruction. And and that's never going to be the case. This is a slow war of attrition that's being fought against an elevated rate environment. That's part of it. Once you find yourself below the hurdle, that doesn't mean that everything's immediately up. That continues and you then have to start being creative as to how you can then address that point with, to a certain extent, time on your side because of the relative long hold periods and long duration of the funds.
0: Mm, mm. So, I mean, it, you also had another finding as well, which showed that um, some managers were considering negotiating to lower the hurdle, I guess. Yes. Um, it's, it's slightly counterintuitive to me because I would have thought that obviously a higher hurdle would incentivize GPs to maximize the value of portfolios and be more aligned with LPs.
1: But it's it doesn't seem like it's such a black and white case. It, I it's guess. not. And it's a balancing act because at the same time you want to make sure that these are achievable hurdles in the environment that you find yourself in. You know, otherwise it, it it's not incentivization, is it? So there needs to be an achievable hurdle in the context of the current environment. And because this is a very different paradigm to say the last 15 years, there's a rethinking of that as well.
0: Mm, that's very interesting. So if it's if it's unachievable, then Effectively, what's the point? Right, okay, Mm -hmm. okay. Would that then lead to kind of, you know, so-called zombie fun situations where manager has no interest in managing the portfolio and is is out to lunch, you know, (laughs) on the golf course every day kind of thing? I
1: I mean, to a certain extent, but you've also got to then consider, you know, the fee element as well, which is still going to be earned, as well as and our drift into legal land, you know, there are continuing fiduciary duties. So I'm not sure you can completely check out.
0: I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So zombie with a bit of a caveat, I guess. Correct. Okay. Okay.
1: But equally in that sort of a scenario, it could well be the case that you're struggling to then raise new funds. And so in that sense, you do see, I wouldn't describe them as zombie funds, but funds that are basically going into an extended wind down process.
0: I see. I see. Okay. Interesting. I mean, you raised the kind of fundraising point that was cited by your respondents as really the the biggest challenge at the moment above anything else, particularly in terms of competing against uh, other managers for capital. I guess that's not really a surprise, is it? That's been playing out for a while.
1: So, correct, that's been playing out. And I think the part of that that's been playing out, and if anything, we saw this accelerate, has been the bifurcation in the industry. So so when you dig into that data, 21% of respondents said it's competing against the largest managers or larger managers for capital that is their chief fundraising concern. And that's that bifurcation we talked about last year where we have the increasingly large multi-strategy asset managers who are out there whose ability the brand name and the delivery to access capital is exponentially larger than smaller funds. And that's where the smaller funds are battling. And then you see that in averages. There's no doubt, as you said, that fundraising has become more difficult. One of the other data points coming out of the report is that pre-pandemic 2019, it took on average 15 months to close a fund. That's now almost 20 months. That's a significant increase in time. And a lot of that, again, tends to be driven by the smaller or newer end of the market rather than well-established larger funds who are still closing at a much faster pace.
0: Mm. And that the data point you just cited, I mean, that's on average. So, uh, so there are some managers who are taking even longer than six months.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And the last question, I guess, about that, that chart, retailization, and I guess yes. this democratization of the asset class was cited as, uh, I guess, a challenge by 10% of uh, sort of globally of, of respondents. What do you think that means when respondents are citing democratization as a challenge?
1: So I think there are a number of challenges there. So, so let, let me try three of them. So firstly, retailization or democratization is primarily the preserve of the largest managers. So it's always gonna skew in that direction. And so if you're a smaller manager, it's automatically a challenge in that I cannot access this. And the reason to come to the second point they cannot access it is the cost of setting up the back office function and the the additional regulatory compliance that comes with directly accessing retail investors. And then the third aspect, and I think this is probably what they were most likely referring to, is the point we talked about last year, which is the potential compression of fees. And and interestingly there, I I felt somewhat vindicated myself. I saw that um, 56% of respondents said that they think the impact on fees is likely to be moderate, but there will be an impact. Another 35% said there will be a major impact on fees, meaning only 9% said that there will be no impact on fees as a result of retailization and and that's because as we talked about last year speaking in a personal capacity as a retail investor retail investors are very focused on fees that's their number one issue and they've also been conditioned when they go into the investment market generally to see the incredibly low fees that they can get from the large passive managers the vanguards of this world you know at fractions of a percent and then when presented with multiples of that they're going to question it quite carefully so We can see all of that playing out. And I do think that's part of the concern that firms have about accessing retail. It's a vast new area of capital that can be exploited, which if it is successfully exploited, will further drive the bifurcation of the market as the largest managers access those new pools of capital. But equally, those risks we talk about come with it.
0: Mm, interesting. So this is huge. I mean, people say trillions. I've seen 75 trillion. I've seen 175 trillion. It's kind of hard to get a good sense of how much capital is there. But I mean, at the end of the day, there is a lot of money coming from non-institutional, uh, potentially coming from non-institutional.
1: Correct. And, and and the market is slowly making its way toward it. I mean, it's become a lot more standard now for uh affluent individual investors, so so I'm not saying the ultra high net worth, simply high net worth, uh, the kind of mass affluent, to be looking to get access to alternatives as part of their portfolio. So that's very much out there already. And that's before you hit the final frontier, which is wholesale retail investing.
0: Mm, Okay. I mean, 91% of respondents saying to you that they are worried to some degree about fees coming down. I mean, that's, that's pretty compelling.
1: Yeah, correct. Correct. The impact of fees. Yep. I'd like to move on to it's not the
0: sexiest of topics, but it's sure. a very, very important topic, and that is um, regulation, particularly. Yes. You know, there's been so much over the last 12 months in terms of changes to the private funds industry coming from the SEC. There have been uh, antitrust noises around, more focus from that. Um, in the UK, uh, it's been reported that uh, the FCA, the regulator here, is going to be looking into uh, valuations, for example. So, kind of firing on, on many cylinders in terms of regulation. And you had a very interesting data point. In your report.
1: Yes, so so I look at this more from a deal lawyer perspective, and you're absolutely right. I mean there's a lot of increased regulation that you touched on that's happening up at the fund level, and I think more to come there' there's obviously the big one at the moment is the proposed changes to the US rules, which, just given the size of that market as the single largest market globally, is going to have a ripple effect. But certainly when you come down to the transaction level where where I sit and you touched on those as well, on the antitrust side, you know the the Federal Trade Commission, continues to very aggressively look at private equity, particularly around roll-ups. That's in the US. And in fact, in late June, um, the FTC and the Department of Justice, the DOJ, collectively announced proposals for a much more stringent set of antitrust rules, which would include an express disclosure of any private equity involvement in a transaction, so outing them in advance. Wow. Um, yep. And okay. And and whilst the EU and the UK, and that point is also an interesting one that we touched on last year, which is we need to remember that the UK for antitrust and foreign direct investment purposes is now a separate regime to the EU. So automatically, just by numbers, you've put an additional regulatory hurdle in. So whilst the EU and the UK are not zeroing in on PE overtly as much as the US is, they have obviously tightened their approach in the digital sector. And you saw that talking in about the UK being its own separate regulatory body, uh, the CMA you know, initially blocking Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. And so a lot more hurdles to be navigated to clear your deal. That's on the antitrust side. On the foreign direct investment side, CFIUS in the US, again, largest market, single biggest regulator for these purposes, clearing fewer deals, launching more investigations. Uh, The UK now has the National Security Investment Act in place. It's another hurdle to be navigated. And and then we, again, we touched on it coming into force. It's now in force in Europe. The foreign subsidies regulation, you know, which which impacts given given the amount of sovereign linked capital that is invested into the private equity industry, that again is an impact that filters all the way down into deals.
0: Mm. It sounds like there's a lot a lot more red tape than there was, you know. Perhaps yes, five from years from ago. a
1: legal perspective, that's a kind of mixed blessing. I mean, <laughs> it makes it more difficult for us to close our clients' deals, but then again, this is what we do, so you know, we're there to help navigate it.
0: -hmm. And I suppose Mm -hmm. the regulations, um, your regulations colleagues would probably, you know, have been quite busy, I guess, over the last 12 months as well.
1: Correct. And then working in conjunction with us, because you need to put the specific regulation into the context of the deal as a whole and work out what the consequent impacts will be on deal timing and managing the other side to the deal. And then also risk allocation if that regulatory clearance is not obtained.
0: How have you seen that play, particularly, I guess, with regards to antitrust? How have you seen that playing out in the transactions that you've been working on over the last 12 months?
1: So pre-pandemic, and perhaps in the in the burst through 2021, it was completely standard in an auction process. And there's still an attempt in auction processes to demand this to get for antitrust purposes, the infamous Hello How Water Clause, which basically says all antitrust risk is pushed across onto the buyer. Certainly, that is a lot more negotiated these days. So that's that point I was making earlier, that there is a a more nuanced risk allocation.
0: Okay. The last kind of topic that I found really, really interesting was about GP stakes. Um, Yes, Yes, it feels to us that sort of you know every every few weeks a new GP stakes firm sort of um, appears you know on the on the horizon. Um, we just heard about a new one th- this morning. Um, in fact, the the interesting data point from your report showed that almost sixty percent of your respondents said they have some plans to divest a GP stake, so uh, I guess equity in their management company to somebody else to a GP stakes buyer.
1: Uh, yes, yes. Point. So the data supports your anecdotal <laughs> views, which is good. And mm-hmm. that was also, to me, a surprisingly high percentage. I think that's driven by a few things. So, so if we take a step back, historically, GP stake divestments were seen to be part of succession planning. And there was an argument that emerged, and I think that argument still holds, that because this is a relatively younger industry, and you just look at timelines of founders, this is within the firms themselves rather than portfolio companies, there will, just through a fluxion of time, come a point when relatively quite a few funds are going to look to manage those succession issues. So I think that is still a valid argument. But what we're also seeing, and this is tied into this concept of alternative liquidity solutions... What we're also seeing is GP stake divestments being used for other purposes. For example, because it results in a liquidity infusion into the management company, into the GP itself, it gives them that liquidity to be able to grow and clearly scale is important in the current environment. We've seen that in that bifurcation that we touched on, but also to be able to distribute funds. So it's another form of driving liquidity back to your investors. Slightly left field, but it results in liquidity being provided. If we look at it on the flip side, if we look at it from the investor side, the GP stake investor side, for people who are wanting to get into the industry, obviously this is an interesting way to come into the industry if you're coming in as an investor, because you're getting directly into the GP, so you're getting the fees and the carry flow coming out of the GP, which means you can then, through that, get access to new private equity managers you might otherwise not be invested in. And clearly you're getting access, and this this is very interesting, to the earnings of that general partner and potentially the carry if that gets triggered. I think the final point on that as well is, and that's one of the other themes in the report, is the continued trend of larger LPs to look for co-investment opportunities. Acquiring the stake in the GP indirectly allows you to talk about and maybe encourage access to co-investment opportunities, increase your own deal flow as an LP.
0: Ah, interesting. Do you mean, as in, if an LP was a an LP a, a committed to a GP Stakes fund, mm-hmm. and then that GP Stakes fund then acquires a minority stake in an asset manager? Mm-hmm.
1: Or, or it might even be the GP Stakes fund itself. Part of its wider organization might look to get access to co-investments of the fund in which it holds a GP stake.
0: Mm, Yeah, at least you're at the
1: table to have that discussion.
0: Interesting, interesting. Okay, so these are LPs thinking quite strategically about ways to, at the end of the day, reduce or minimize fees that they're paying on private equity exposure. Yeah,
1: and, and also get potentially larger upside because you're directly in at the asset level.
0: Chris, before we wrap up, are there any other takeaways from your report or topics that you think would be interesting for our readers to hear about?
1: So just talking about that strategy diversification, I think the most surprising statistic for me uh, the question that we posed to respondents is outside of your existing strategies, what other strategy do you anticipate moving into within the next 12 months? And, and as I mentioned, direct lending is still very much there, although lower than last year. And I think that's a function of a lot of firms having moved into direct lending, or if not direct lending, then maybe fund level financing, so some form of credit. But the really surprising statistic for me was that 78% of GPs said they expect to add hedge fund capabilities in the next 12 months. I saw months. that, yes. <laughs> and so... What's going on there? It's... Yeah, I'm tr- I'm trying to understand that myself. I suspect it's again driven by elevated rates, that in an elevated rates environment, being able to trade on those higher rates rather than having less liquid, uh, say, direct lending strategies is seen to be beneficial. I suspect that's the case, but I'm not certain. Okay. But it is definitely something that we're gonna dig into a little bit more because <laughs> it is just such an interesting statistic. Yeah. Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. it's
0: sort of very left field. You know, It's yeah. not sort of adding, in you know, a private equity firm, adding a, a growth team or a private credit team or even a real assets team. This is, I mean, a very different, still within alternatives, but it's yes. very different yeah, way co- of investing. Co-
1: correct, although, although um, when you look at the larger, and, and they're certainly a part of the respondent base, the larger multi-strategy asset managers, that is definitely an area that you're seeing them moving more and more into. And you know, a lot of them have special situations teams, and this is the next step across, I, I believe, the nomenclature special opportunities, which is really being able to look for dislocations in the public markets that you can take advantage of, which may include even doing a control take private or may include a minority investment into a public company. So it could well be that a lot of that thinking has been caught up in the terminology hedge fund capability.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, very interesting. I yeah. certainly would not have put that at the top of, uh, Likewise. <laughs> of the list for that, for that <laughs> yeah. question. So absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, A lot of interesting takeaways from your report. I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, I mean, thinking about the next kind of 12 months, do you think that there are anything, I mean, what are the biggest things that you think participants should be kind of thinking about or having on their minds?
1: Yeah, again, I think it's all driven by where interest rates go. Uh, if rates remain elevated, and this doesn't mean if rates increase, this just means if they remain relatively elevated, certainly to the pre, you know, the the ZERP, as they called it, environment, then a lot of the themes that we've talked about will continue to need to be focused on. So that means creative deal structuring to bridge uh, valuation gaps, at least until the sell side really capitulates in the face of elevated rates. I think there'll be a continued trend toward credit I think there'll also be a lot of those bigger themes that we talked about. So the continued bifurcation in the market between the larger multi-strategy asset managers and the smaller funds. And so if you're in a smaller fund, very, very carefully defining your thesis and making sure that's understood by your investor base. I think we'd also continue to see relatively fewer platform acquisitions. Although that said, there's anecdotal evidence at the moment that deal activity is beginning to pick up. So that's a positive. Hopefully that stays the same. So I think those, yeah, a number of things that I'd be keeping in mind.
0: Mm, absolutely fascinating. Well, we'll have to have you back in 12 months' time to, A, talk about if those things had happened, and B, I'm assuming you're going to be putting out a, another report. Absolutely. At this, at this we'll be doing our seventh year. edition. Wow. Hopefully
1: we're talking about all of this. Although, as, as I always say, the one thing that we can't we know it's out there. It's a known unknown, which is what I call factor X—something surprising that we didn't anticipate that then reshapes the market. You know, so obviously the U- Ukraine invasion, and then rather unexpectedly, the U.S. regional banking crisis this year, far more recently. What's happening in Israel and Gaza? You know, there's, there's all sorts of things that you wouldn't otherwise expect that could occur, mm. which will reshape the market. Um, so so everything that we've just talked about is obviously caveated by that. Yes, Black Swan event, <laughs> yep. I guess. Yes, Here we are. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, where can people find your report?
1: Um, so it's on our website. If you go to www.deckert.com, you'll be able to download it from there.
0: Fantastic. Very good. Well, Chris Field, partner at Decert, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the PEI Spotlight. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thanks, Adam. Thank you for having me. We look forward to speaking again.
1: Absolutely.